Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back everyone to another Pain Talk podcast. Today we're going to continue our discussion around cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And just to review some of the information that we talked about is that cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is a vomiting syndrome where patients who are chronic users of cannabis develop this cyclic nausea and vomiting, severe belly pain, and the only time they get relief is to actually go to a shower or to a hot bath. Uh, A number of reasons why that's happening. There's a number of theories about how the cannabis is contributing to this very complicated syndrome. One of the theories suggests that it could be related to that higher dose of THC that we're starting to see, as well as the uh, stimulation of these receptors called vanilloid receptors that are in the hypothalamus. And the interesting thing about these receptors is THC does bind to these receptors, but in low-dose THC, often this helps with nausea. That's why we can use this Uh, We can use cannabis sometimes to help manage chemo-induced nausea and vomiting in our cancer patients. But if you're using very high doses of THC, it seems to do the opposite effect, which is that paradoxical response, meaning it contributes to the vomiting and to the uh, abdominal pain and the belly pain. And I'll just remind you of the case that we talked about a few weeks ago, and that was Jake. And just to reinforce the nature of the vomiting is very unique in these patients. So Jake was a 28-year-old male with blood-curdling Monty Python-style vomiting, and this was coming from his toes. And it is quite striking when you have someone in the department that is vomiting with this syndrome. It's just they look miserable, and they are miserable. So they really need to have some kind of a immediate relief of this vomiting. So it's really, really important. And uh, they will often give you that story where the only relief they get is to get into a hot shower. So this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the triggers that can happen with vomiting that are not specific to the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, but just to kind of bring in the complexity around the medications that we can use. What makes cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome unique is that often we can use pharmacotherapy that works in the higher centers in the brain. So what we want is something that's going to help to dampen down the 5-HT3 receptor, these uh, other receptors that we call the uh, D2 receptors. These tend to be receptors that tend to work more in in the brain area. And when we're looking at pharmacotherapy that's associated with that, they're usually the dopamine antagonists. So things like metoclopramide, domperidone, haloperidol. Now, in my experience uh, with patients with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, often the uh, metoclopramide doesn't work as well, but the haloperidol seems to be quite effective. And there's been a number of studies there as well. Other areas that can stimulate trigger Uh, the uh, vomiting. So these trigger centers that are really brought on by these noxious stimulus. So within the central nervous system we're talking about, so that's the higher centers. Then you get the cerebellum, which is really that inner ear motion, so that vestibular piece. And then we can look at uh, the chemoreceptor trigger zone. So that's that blood-brain barrier that we see with chemotherapy. So typically when we're trying to target these areas, 
Um, and there is some theory that cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is very similar to the trigger that we see with the chemoreceptor trigger zone. So often the therapies that we're using in that area, as well as the higher centers, can help these patients. All of that information from the central nervous system feeds into the vomiting center, which is in the medulla uh, and the hypothalamus. So, and that's what elicits the vomiting. We can also have a trigger of a noxious stimulus from the gut or the heart. So the vagal nerve is one stimulation that can sometimes be triggered by pain. We can also see that around the um, dysmotility that we often see related to some medications like opiates. The way we manage it in the gut is going to be very different than how we manage it in the brain. So it is important to ask ourselves, where is the stimulus coming from? And we know that with the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, it seems to be more central. So it's in around that D2 receptor, as well as the area in around the M1 receptor. Any kind of medications that we can use to work in those areas is going to make a difference. So these patients tend to use very atypical types of antiemetics. So when we think about Gravol, for instance, that would probably be one of our most standard antiemetics that we use in the emergency room. And uh, so that would be more in the anticholinergic piece. People with cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome do not respond well to the anticholinergic medications. They tend to look at those dopamine antagonists a little bit more, as well as the cannabinoid receptor, CB1 receptor. Now, I haven't tried Nabilon in these patients, which is obviously a uh, synthetic cannabinoid, um, mostly because they're vomiting when they came in. Uh, it's very difficult to get these medications into patients. But whether or not it could be a strategy for patients, it's hard to say, to manage if they choose to continue to use cannabis. I haven't seen any literature around that, but it would be interesting if anyone out there has read any literature around the use of Nabilon for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. So we talked last time about how this cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is diagnosed. And so there are essential features and there are major and supportive features. So typically the essential features are that they have to use cannabis long-term. So they get these major features around the cyclic episodes of nausea and vomiting. The, the symptoms decrease after the cannabis cessation or dropping the cannabis. Uh, they get that relief with the showers. This abdominal pain is quite striking. Other supportive features to the diagnosis include male dominance, uh, usually under the age of 40 or 50, we talked about before, and all the investigations have been essentially negative, and weight loss was not a prominent feature of these patients. This cyclic vomiting syndrome gets brought up a lot and sort of seems to overlap the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And this is uh, very similar where patients are getting recurrent severe vomiting uh, with uh, abdominal pain, and they can have this headache. So we often talk about the abdominal pain being almost like a migraine-like as well. But these patients often get uh, migraines with the cyclic vomiting syndrome. So we often think about it as a brain-gut disorder, and it's been around for more than 100 years. We still don't know what causes that particular syndrome, but some of the differences between the cyclic vomiting syndrome and cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome is the pathological use of hot showers or baths for the cannabinoid hyperemesis and usually patients will have vomiting-free intervals. Um, almost always these patients have cannabinoid use. 
Whereas the cyclic vomiting syndrome is a sudden onset of episodic vomiting. They tend to get this abdominal migraine type symptom that we talked about, although they can get your classic migraine as well. They often have about four bouts of vomiting per hour, 12 to 15 episodes per day. And the vomiting is often separated by weeks or months. And they cannot contribute this to any other disorder. So these patients are often patients that are not using cannabis, obviously, because that would confuse things. So in our overall approach around how we help patients manage this condition, your general approach is really having the conversation around harm reduction generally. You want to make sure that patients, um, one of the, the questions that I love to ask patients who are using cannabis on a regular basis is how it helps them. What is it that motivates them to use the cannabis? That can be really important because especially when you're trying to integrate some harm reduction strategies or help them uh, learn how they can manage risk around the choice they're making around using it. So if it's helping them deal with anxiety, bringing in the conversation around tolerance that over time their body gets used to the amount that they're using and they they start to increase the amount of THC which creates a lot of problems, especially when we're looking at the trigger about cannabinoid hyperemesis as well as a, a, a cannabis use disorder as well. Also explain that 100% of patients when they use cannabis will develop something called dependency. Dependency does not mean addiction. It just means that their body is used to using it. And when you pull that cannabis back, they'll experience withdrawal, which actually increases their anxiety. So it actually can drive their anxiety. And this becomes really important in that conversation. And the only way that they can actually get a handle on this is to actually decrease or stop the cannabis use. A small percentage of patients will go on to develop a cannabis use disorder. It's between 9 and 11%. And using the DSM-5 categories can help you, and I'll explain that in just a second. So in general, you want to find out how it's motivating them. So trying to get them to develop some kind of a routine or structure to the day trying to eat the three meals a day, make sure they're going to bed at night at the same time, getting up the same. And these are all big, tall orders, but the brain loves structure. It loves routine. COVID has definitely disrupted a lot of that, but I think we should start to try and challenge patients to try and start somewhere along getting control of this syndrome. So getting them to uh, eat a proper diet, to avoid fasting. So many of our patients will actually, especially our smokers in, in general, if there is a habit around, you know, smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee and sugar, not eating through the day, and then just eating one meal at nighttime, which is really when the body wants to shut down. You also want to treat any comorbidities that you might see with the patient. So if they do have a cannabis use disorder, unfortunately, we don't have a cannabis patch right now. But we want to have a conversation about how we can help the patient manage their cannabis use disorder because it would be very difficult for them to stop. So whether or not you're using a synthetic cannabinoid, which will not cause this syndrome, what's important to know, though, if you're doing any urine drug screening is that uh, Nabilon will not show up in a urine drug test. You want to make sure that you're dealing with the right diagnosis as well. Even though you don't want to over-medicate patients, it's really important to do that initial screening investigation, and of course in women, to make sure that they're not pregnant. So if it's mild or moderate, then you're really just trying to get patients to either prevent the, the occurrence of the cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. I always look at it this from, you know, the choice really is the patient's. Your, you know, the journey is ultimately theirs. You're just there to provide some guidance and some support. 
and to try and help them answer the questions that are going to help them make the right kind of decision for their body. For many patients, they are not ready to give up their cannabis use. So you can kind of take what I would call a harm reduction approach where you can get them to consider lowering their THC concentration. Now, if they're smoking, that can become problematic because it may actually increase their amount of smoking, which increases the complications related to combusting a leaf. This is something that you want to have a conversation with that patient So if you were trying to help them not show up at the emergency room, we can look at that temperature piece, how we can help them regulate that uh, vanilloid uh, temperature uh, receptor regulation. We know that if we increase the temperature in that receptor, it actually helps to block the vomiting. One of the treatments that we can use is capsation. So capsation, there's been a number of studies. There is one by Zelenik out of the clinical toxicology in September of 2017. Sometimes when we're super busy in the emergency room, we've tried to use some of the pharmacotherapy. We'll actually give the cannabinoid uh, topical to the patient to apply it to their belly. It's important for them to have a glove on when they're doing that, though. If it's really severe, then often those patients need IV fluids. They need to recognize that until they stop the use of the cannabis, this is going to be very difficult to control. So it always brings me to the quote that the information we give our patients has possibility. So knowledge is possibility. It only has power if we use it. But the key is, is if we're ready to use it or know how to use it. So knowledge is possibility. It only has power if we are ready to use it or if we know how to use it. So if that patient is not ready, if they're pre-contemplative, there's not much that I'm going to do to change that behavior, although it sometimes can be really helpful to help them look at the consequences of the use, the fact that they're presenting to the emergency room, that they're missing a lot of time from work, that physically this is exhausting for their body. Uh, So helping them see the consequences sometimes might help them make that shift. Other complications that you need to identify in some patients are the electrolyte abnormalities, in particular your potassium. And it's always important to recognize that if their potassium is low, their magnesium is going to be low, and they're not going to hang on to that that potassium unless you replace the magnesium as well. So often if I'm thinking about replacing potassium, I always give these patients at least two grams of magnesium, run that over 20 minutes, and then give them the potassium. So the fluid balance can be an issue, aspiration, and of course these patients, because the vomiting is so aggressive, they can actually tear their esophagus So it's important to make sure that they don't have any significant mediastinal disease that's happening. The management ultimately, though, is that they have to stop the cannabis. But that takes, it's a process. It's it's like trying to tell a patient to stop smoking. It's just very difficult to do that, especially if they're not ready to do that. And I think all of us have had habits or behaviors that we have found challenging to stop. So I do focus in more on that harm reduction strategy. So when we think about, well, they're going to stop, and patients have told me this all the time, is that they stop the cannabis, but guess what? It doesn't change anything. So the question is, how long? And this can take a long time to actually correct. For patients, sometimes it can take months, and for some patients, it can take years, because sometimes there can be a a lot of other complexity associated with the cannabis use. You know, and I give the example of chemotherapy-induced vomiting. I mean, the patient will have a lot of memory around those vomiting issues. 
So even if they're around people who are smoking cannabis, they can actually vomit just from the learned behavior when they had those severe vomiting issues, just like chemo-induced nausea and vomiting. So there is a memory component there as well. And like we talked about earlier, is that if they do have a cannabis use disorder, they really need to be able to get some help. So stopping cannabis use can be very, very difficult. Only 8% who try actually succeed, and that's very similar to other types of uh, substance use disorder. We now have, you know, different groups of support systems that can help people stop. And I'm pretty sure that we'll probably see a Cannabis Anonymous, as we do with Alcohol Anonymous, Narcotic Anonymous, you know, all these different uh, groups that actually support individuals who have different types of substance use disorder. So cannabis is the third ranking substance next to alcohol and opioids for prevalence for people seeking treatment. So we know that that is coming and increasing as well. So if we look at the diagnosis of cannabis use disorder using DSM-5, there is four different groups of criteria. One is the impaired control. The second is social impairment. That means they're not getting to work. They're missing school. They're doing all their... They're not connected to people and things. They're giving up all kinds of social activities and occupational or recreational activities that used to bring them joy. They're using these substances in very risky ways. So using it in a way that they're mixing things in it, um, using it in hazardous situations while they're driving, despite consequences. So they may be getting trouble with the law, but they continue to still use. The pharmacological indicators include tolerance and withdrawal. So that, that would be uh, a given with chronic users. So the number of criteria in each of those four groups determine the severity of the substance use disorder or the cannabis use disorder. So usually someone with a mild disorder will have, of those 11 points, between two or three, moderate four or five, and severe has more than six. So you can see how it would be very easy. So someone with impaired control who's using more than they intended, not able to stop, looking for the cannabis, so spending a lot of time trying to get the cannabis, especially the type that they want, and they have intense cravings. So there's four right, right away with the impaired control. The social impairment is failure to fulfill major obligations, continued use despite social or interpersonal problems, as we mentioned, and giving up those activities. And we talked about the risk. So it wouldn't take much uh, for many of the patients that we're seeing in our uh, emergency room but the decision to stop is going to be up to them. What you're trying to do is to help promote a safe way of using the substance as well as helping them make the decision that maybe this is not giving them the kind of thing that they need, that they don't need the cannabis in their life in order to have purpose, connection, or to manage their anxiety. So that harm reduction approach, however, is where we tend to focus in. So lowering that THC, trying a different strain, or even a different delivery system. So these are all things that they can they can try and, and do. So when you look at the literature around the management, we talked about different antiemetics, but there are other therapies that you can consider as well. So it's important to recognize that they don't respond to the normal mainstay uh, antiemetic therapy. So there are many suggestions, but the evidence is terrible. So when you look at short-term benzo use, almost immediately that makes me a little bit nervous, but using it in the emergency department may help just to kind of break the cycle. Some patients are just so miserable and there is a lot of distress around this vomiting. It, it is very distressful even to see for these patients. 
But you need to have that conversation with the patient, especially if they've ever struggled with a substance use disorder in the past. There is some evidence around the long-term use of tricyclic antidepressants, as well as gabapentin and the antipsychotics that we talked about, so haloperidol, as well as the topicals. The most beneficial antiemetics have been the, we talked about this, is the D2 and D3 antagonists. So this would be the um, haloperidol, those particular types of medications, as well as the 5-HT antagonists that specify the gut. So you can try metoclopramide. It can be sometimes helpful. The um, Zofran can also be helpful. Generally, it's very difficult for these patients to find the right combination. The most success that I've had has actually been haloperidol, usually in a very large dose of 5 milligrams intravenously. But it's important to think of the non-pharmacological, so the pharmacological therapies versus the non-pharmacological therapies. So heat therapy we talked about, uh, the topical agents, as well as the the hot water. So the heat therapy has been kind of interesting, actually, uh, and it was picked out from an internet survey that was done in 2014, and that's how uh, this syndrome actually started to kind of come to the mainstream and how patients were managing it. 67% of patients who actually did this survey showed relief with the hot water and the bath. They also noted that there was other high comorbidity in those patients that were really suffering with this condition, including uh, migraines, bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depression. This has been something that was discovered in an internet survey. So it hasn't really been studied extensively, which is kind of interesting. Capsation is something that has been studied, topical capsation in small, small numbers of patients. So you can get it in different strains, 0.075%, 0.25%, or 0.1%. So what capsation does is it binds to the vanilloid receptor and enhances their antiemetic effect. The TRPV1 nociceptive system becomes activated by both that high acidic pH as well as high temperature. So we talked about that in a previous podcast. And the high temperature releases this substance P. So there are no large randomized control trials to promote this as definitive therapy, but it seems to be very low risk and non-invasive. So those patients that are not ready to give up their cannabis, I sometimes will make that suggestion that they try it. So how do you want to apply the capsation? They've got to wear gloves. And they apply a small amount to the palm of their hand, 0.5 ounces, and they put that on their abdomen. It takes about 20 to 30 minutes to reach their peak effect, and it lasts about three hours. If it fails, they can reapply it. So that gives you a little bit of information about that. Okay, so I think we're going to stop there. Hopefully you found this interesting and informative. I think the important thing is is having that high index of suspicion that this is out there. It's important to approach this in a non-judgmental way. Many people are making a decision to use cannabis on a regular basis, and there is that temptation to push that THC concentration, which unfortunately creates a lot of complications for patients. We will put the literature on the website so that you can look at these papers. It is quite interesting to talk about this syndrome, and hopefully you enjoyed the talk today. So we'll stop for now and pick it up in a couple of weeks, hopefully with another interesting topic. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.